Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Put my life into this job. What I want to see is change. What are the posters available, sir? What do you have? I'm tired of this thing. I am too. So let's change it. Take Mexico, Kiki. Agent Camarena. Welcome to Guadalajara. You're the best agent we have. I need you to take down the one calling the shots. Miguel Felix Gallardo. He's the boss. Where do we get started, Chief? Felix Gallardo crosses the DEA for the last time tonight. Show them what they're not seeing. I can't leave without Felix knowing my name. He will. One day. As documented by the hugely popular Netflix television series Narcos, in the 1980s, the flow of narcotics to the United States transitioned from Colombian cocaine airlifted into the southeast to Mexican marijuana ground-delivered across our southern border. Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California became the new Florida. Jaime Figueroa Soto was one of those early kingpins partnering with Felix Gallardo and Rafael Caro Quintero, they were responsible for millions of cubic tons of marijuana arriving in the U.S. from Sinaloa, Mexico, long before such terms as cartels and narco-terrorism were part of our vocabulary. The man who led the investigation into Jaime Figueroa Soto was DEA Special Agent Roger Wallace. Roger spent 30 years with DEA, his first 10 as a special agent, his last 20 as a DEA pilot. I graduated from college in, in 1970. Ball State University. Uh, I got commissioned in the Marine Corps, uh, went right into the Marines, spent three years in the Marines. Uh, I was over at the base education officer, 1st Marine Division uh, headquarters, seeing a buddy of mine. And as I was coming down the stairs, there were two tables set up down in the foyer, LAPD and LA County Sheriff. And when I saw that, I said, there's my next job right there. Sheriff's Department called me first, and I got in there. Uh, I was in there for uh, almost five years, Sheriff's Department. Left there, went into DEA in 78, and then I was there for 30 years uh, at DEA. Very early in his drug hunting career, Roger witnessed law enforcement's tactic in the fight against weed traffickers of poisoning their crops. The U.S. government was involved in spraying Paraquat. Uh, on Mexican marijuana. The, uh, the Mexican government uh, allowed us to come down there and we were doing that. And uh, so really Mexican marijuana had kind of a bad street connotation. 
Roger learned very early on that the targeting of street dealers would only have a short-term impact on the drug trade. Buying dope on the street, I mean, it's cool and you're doing it and it's, it's great. It's almost like a, a kid's game when you're playing cops and robbers, you're trying to outsmart these guys. These are the, this is the lowest level that you're talking about, street guys. So when you're sweeping these guys off the street, you're not really doing much but to try to get the higher level guys, you're not going to be able to walk into a bar, walk up to a guy, strike up a conversation, and this guy's going to sell you uh, 100 pounds of Coke. That's just not going to happen. You have to arrest some other guys, flip these guys, turn these guys into witnesses to where that they can testify on these other guys, and you're trying to move up the food chain to get to the biggest guy you can get. The capturing of a foreign drug kingpin on American soil is highly unlikely. Now, one of the problems we always have here in Arizona and any place along the border, at some point, the bigger guy is south of the line. And getting to that guy is going to be tough. And they, you know, they don't want to come up here for one reason. Uh, they don't want to be arrested up here. And where they're at, what country they're in, they probably have a lot of influence about whether they get arrested or even have to worry about it. So you can kind of only move so far in that. But that's, that's the nature of the game. That's what you want to try to do. Initially, Roger wanted to be transferred to where Colombian cocaine trafficking was most prolific. I wanted to be transferred to Florida. I want to get out of there where it was going on. It just it didn't seem like there was that much going on here. And eventually, that kind of turned around. Uh, as we put a big effort down in Florida, that kind of forced these guys back over into Mexico. And I kind of make this analogy now that we have these uh, the Africanized bees that came here. We had the little honeybees here that were they do their work and they're fine. Well, they got Africanized, and now when you get a big uh, a swarm of bees in your backyard, I mean, you can get killed out there. What happened is the Colombians came up into Mexico, and dealing with them, the uh, Mexicans ba basically got became like the Africanized bees. They became so much more eventually, and now so, even more violent uh, than, than what was going on in South America. And at one point, that almost looked like that was impossible, but it's not impossible now. And, um, and now we're, we're living next door to a narco state. Roger's investigation of Jaime Figueroa Soto began after an almost accidental discovery of one of Jaime's stash houses in Tucson. It was a Friday afternoon, March of uh, uh, 84. I was on the way home, and I get a call from Tom Petropoulos. I work with Tom, and I got some uh, uniformed officers out of the location on East Speedway now. They got a call from a, a, a homeowner that said, uh, my next door neighbor looks like his house is being robbed right now. He said, there's a tractor trailer backed up to the front door. Why don't you come out here? And I said, hey, I'm on the way. Two cars of police officers, deputies showed up. They went into that. They went into the house. These guys ran. They ran into the house. They went in there and uh, five guys, they got these five guys. They said, it's floor to ceiling marijuana in this whole house. They took them back outside. This is obviously from Mexico. This is international in scope. Without asking my boss or his boss, I said, yeah, DEA would love to have this case. If you just need us help loading trucks, whatever you want us to do, we'll do. Roger enlisted the support of Assistant United States Attorney John Roll in an application for search warrants. Of note, years later in January of 2011, John Roll, 
now a federal judge, was killed along with five others in the Tucson shooting that also injured Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. I immediately left and went to uh, John Roll's house. He was an assistant U.S. attorney at that time to get a search warrant. I said, some more agents. I called the office and I said, send everybody you got over here. We get federal search warrants from Judge uh, uh, Tom Bilby at that time. We go back and search. And those two locations, there's about 50,000 pounds of marijuana. And later on that evening, we found a second tractor trailer that they bought that was sitting out at the Triple T truck stop. They were going to load... Eventually, we figured out they were going to load these two tractor trailers and take all this dope to California. That's how it all started from right there. In a stroke of investigators' luck, the traffickers were careless with their accounting records, and the hunt for Jaime Figueroa Soto was on. In this house, there were some cardboard boxes on this kitchen table. There were 40 drug ledgers, of the, the best drug ledgers I ever saw. One of the arrested suspects was the organization's bookkeeper, a potentially key witness capable of deciphering the drug codes. One of those five guys was this guy named Guillermo Soto Leal. He was the, uh, he was kind of the bookkeeper. And he was the guy that authored a lot of those. Of course, just cursory looking through that, those drug ledgers, Jaime's name was in that book, was in one of those books. So, and we had kind of suspected this was kind of his area. We figured this might have been his, but when we saw that, we thought, okay, this is probably his. We've got to go to court. So now it's just trying to put this case together and go to court in a very short period of time, uh, which we did. We got all five of these guys convicted, and Judge Bilby gave Guillermo Soto Leal 45 years. And he told him at the time of sentencing, if you will come and talk to me, meaning the judge, he said, I would entertain drastically reducing your sentence if you will tell me whose dope this is and tell me some more. And uh, Guillermo sat there very nicely and never said a word, and that was it. So everybody goes off to jail. The case was successfully prosecuted, but climbing the ladder to more significant shot callers in the trafficking enterprise stagnated. But it kind of sit there like that for a couple years with nothing happening. At that point, we got a new assistant special agent in charge of the Arizona division. And he come in, and, and this guy had been in Nogales. He knew who Jaime Figueroa Soto was, and he was outraged that nothing else had really happened during this time. And so they, they asked me, would you be willing to take on this case again? And I, I said, yeah, I, I, with a couple of caveats. And they said, okay, well, what is that? I said, well, I, I want this one young guy, uh, a guy named David Garcia. I want him as a partner. I need a Spanish speaker. You know, we're going to have to have, you know, more resources than just a couple guys if we want to do this. The bookkeeper, Guillermo Leal, decided that he did not want to spend the rest of his life in a prison cell. His brother worked as a hidden intermediary, hoping to avoid retaliations for his brother's cooperation. Guillermo Soto Leal's brother called the office, and he wanted to talk to me. So he went and talked, and he said, I would, uh, my brother would like to cooperate. And so we talked about that. And, and of course, I said, you, your brother's represented. I can't talk to your brother with the attorney that he has now. Uh, and, 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 of course, uh, his brother Martin said, if they find out my brother's cooperating, our whole family will be killed in Mexico. So we had some problems that we had to work on. 
we overcame those problems, and Guillermo Soto Leal became an informant for us. It was unbelievable uh, just listening to him go through, down through the books. The books were basically uh, when you came in and you got uh, marijuana, uh, it was weighed to the hundredth of a pound, and it went into the books. You were fronted. You were a good enough customer that they gave you that. Then he did not handle the money, though. That was somebody else who handled the money. But he would be told, so-and-so made a $200,000 payment. So he put that in his books. So you always knew where you stood with the guy. And there's list and list of clients, and we start trying to figure out who these clients were. With John Roll now serving as a judge, the newly assigned federal prosecutors insisted that Roger wiretap the suspects. I told him, I said, we've, we've got the ledgers, we've got the dope, I've got the guy who made the ledgers, why do we need a wiretap? Well, no, no, we, we really we need to kind of freshen this whole thing up. We're, re- that, that, we're going to do it this way. They make the decisions. The agents don't call the prosecutorial shots. We wound up getting a wiretap. To even get a wiretap, it was an 84-page affidavit, and we had to analyze thousands of phone calls uh, it made it harder. By this time, we knew Jaime, Jaime had, he had two houses here in Tucson. He actually had two wives with the same name, Maria Elena. He had one house that was at the Tucson Country Club. He lived to, next door to Reg Morrison, who happened to be a Pima County Board of Supervisors member. We would actually put some agents in his house and watch Jaime's house from Board of Supervisors' house. The wire paid off when plans for a Christmas-time drug murder were overheard. We had the wire tap. As soon as we get the wire tap up, uh, we didn't actually have a tap on Jaime. We put a a tap on two of his former uh, police officer employees from Mexico. They lived in Nogales. And the first day up on the wire, one of them was talking about they wanted to kill a rival guy for Christmas. Roger fought through government bureaucracy and roadblocks, inspired his peers' enthusiasm, and brought the various investigative elements and interests together to move his case forward. We had a big meeting at the U.S. Attorney's Office. My direct supervisor and I went down there. We were getting some kind of heat from DEA about, let's get going with this. We went down there, and what we wanted to do was we had a list of guys that we could indict, but we wanted, we wanted to get the arrest warrants and go out and arrest these guys, and then then try to uh, turn a couple of these guys into becoming witnesses to make the case even stronger. We had Guillermo Soto Leal, but we we wanted some more. Even the agents, we knew that. And the U.S. Attorney's Office, all the way to the top, turned us down flat and said, that's not how we do business. We're going to indict them. You go talk to them now and try to turn them into witnesses. And I said, well, here's the problem. If you go talk, and go talk to the wrong guy and he calls, he calls Jaime, he's going to leave town. He'll be gone and we'll never get him. Because we, one of his buddies went to Costa Rica. He's got the money. We had, we had already, at the same time we were doing, we had identified bank accounts. We knew we had homes. Lots of money, cars, airplanes, and stuff. We didn't want to lose all that. We were afraid we would lose the defendants and we'd lose all these resources. And they, they wouldn't go for it. And it actually got pretty heated down there. And my boss and I were asked to leave the office of the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I called the SAC and I told him, we're not getting anywhere with this. 
And he said, well, call the county attorney's office. So I had a, a, a friend that worked down there, a guy named Gene Anaya. Uh, Gene was one of the best. He was a TPD officer. He's one of the best narcs that ever lived and worked in Tucson. And he said, well, he said, uh, let me talk to Ken Peasley, who was a prosecutor. I knew Ken had an awesome uh, reputation. So he called me back and, and he said, uh, Ken said, hey, I know it's a Sunday, but he said, will you come down uh, to the county attorney's office on a Sunday? I said, absolutely, will we come down? I mean, you, you know, you have to fight to get an appointment to go down to the U.S. attorney's office. Here, they wanted to, they're working on a Sunday. So I went down and I laid it out to Ken. And he says, well, I tell you what, I'm going to send Gene and I up to the federal prison in Phoenix, and he's going to talk to Guillermo Soto Leal. And he's gonna, he will assess what kind of a witness he is. If he says that he thinks he's a good witness, we'll do it. So Gene went up probably the next day. He come back. He said, that's the greatest witness I've ever seen. And he's, so Ken said, hey, we'll do it. So he says, not only that, he says, let me call a friend of mine. He called John Davis, who's an attorney for the uh, uh, Arizona uh, Attorney General's office. And actually, John came down, John Davis came down to that Sunday meeting. And Ken asked him, will you co-prosecute uh, this case with me, with Ken? And, and John, he knew all the players and stuff, everything at that time. And he said, yeah. He said, the, uh, the state attorney general's office is in. How about if we do this? Let's work on this all together and try to roll this up in one big Christmas present with a big bow on it. And let's, let's work on all this together. And uh, we had uh, IRS guys working with us. Uh, they are absolutely top-notch. Uh, and there were other people working on there. So uh, I, we were just overjoyed that now here was somebody that had as much enthusiasm for this case that my partner and I did at that time. With the prosecution gearing up, a double homicide related to the case created another obstacle to coordinate and overcome. It was a homicide. Tom Petropoulos was a homicide uh, detective at that time. And he came and I knew we had already, we knew these names. We knew the names of the two guys that we thought had killed these two guys. That these were two cops from Mexico that were working for Jaime up here. And we kind of suspected that. And Tom came out and a little, I was a little worried. I thought, uh-oh, this is going to blow up in our face if Jaime thinks that he might get involved in this homicide, he's going to be gone. So I talked to Tom, and, and uh, he didn't know the two names of the guys that we had. And, but, but, you know, you, you know you, you, it's all based on trust. So I told Tom, I said, I suspect these are the two guys that did it. He had a picture that I've got someplace around here. These two guys were bound and blindfolded, shot in the head, and dumped in a ditch uh, right out there by Ryan Field. Tom had information. He had, he had interviewed some people. Nobody was really talking much. But uh, they believed that this guy had tried to come up and either collect money from Jaime or maybe they had come up to whack Jaime. Roger used creativity and the law to develop informants and witnesses, building his case towards prosecution. So what we did is we kind of did what we initially wanted to do. We figured out, we looked at and thought, looked at our list of defendants and tried to figure out who we thought would maybe uh, flip and roll and, and talk to us. 
The plan of attack was an investigator's best friend, search warrants. The challenge was developing the probable cause to get them. Critical to the case against Jaime Figueroa Soto and his trafficking associates was to hit them where it hurt the most, their pocketbooks. So about this same time, one of, the, one of those defendants, he gets stopped by the Florida Highway Patrol. Uh, he's got $650,000 in cash in a car. So I get a call from this uh, IRS guy from Florida, and he's telling me the story he wants to know. And I tell him, yeah, I know the guy. Uh, and uh, this guy's name was Chuck Petzl. He's the local boy. And um, so he, we, we come up with this strategy. At that time, the top um, IRS uh, bracket on your taxes was 50%. So in our ledgers, we could show that this guy, Chuck Petzl, had gotten about a hundred and uh, I'm sorry, about uh, about one point one and a half million dollars worth of weed in a, in a nine month period, which was in one year. So uh, this IRS guy says, "Well, you know what we can do? That's a commodity. It doesn't matter if it's weed, if it's diamonds." Porsches, whatever it is. He didn't pay taxes on that. He says, let's take this guy to court. So we, uh, we charge him with these IRS charges. Uh, this, this Florida IRS guy comes out here. We said, here's a guy. He had a $1.5 million worth of something. He paid no taxes on it. The judge, in a very quick court thing, he said, yep, the guy owes the federal government Seven hundred fifty thousand bucks. Well, we don't have the seven hundred fifty thousand, but we got six fifty. We'll keep all that, and then he still owes us a hundred grand. I thought that was the slickest thing I had ever seen. I thought that was great. Roger's relentless nature assembled the parts and pieces of a complex drug conspiracy, relying on the recruitment of informants and insider source information. We hit up on another guy, uh, a guy named Sergio. And he was one of the bigger dealers in there. We could, we had all the, by now we had a lot of really good names, not all of them, but a lot of them. Well, this guy had a pretty nice house. He lived up in Sabino Canyon. And I thought, this guy's got a lot to lose. He's got a wife and some kids. So we went and talked to this guy. He actually had an attorney and he came to the uh, preliminary hearing. And so uh, a lot of times the preliminary hearing is waived, but this one was not. So we had Guillermo Soto Liel testify at the preliminary hearing with uh, Bernie Velasco was the state judge at that time, which is a great thing for us. So this Sergio was there, he talked to his attorney and it's actually his attorney called me and he said, would you be willing to come out to my office for a free talk? I said, yeah. So we went out there and met the guy and, and I told the guy, I said, hey, if you're willing to talk, we'll, we'll try to get you a complete walk on this. And, he, and, and uh, they said, okay, that's what they were looking for. He told me, he says, when I was sitting there at the preliminary hearing and Guillermo Soto Leal was talking, he said it was though it was the voice of God. Everything he said was true, and he said, I knew I was going up the river. So he testified. So now we've got a case. We got, we got the guy that authored most of the deal. We've got a guy whose name is in there who can say, this is me, this means dope, this means money, who could really substantiate our our evidence. We put together a big roundup. We uh, we probably had we did uh, twelve search warrants from Nogales all the way up to uh, Chandler. Uh, 
uh, all these different houses involved. We probably had at least a couple hundred uh, state and local and federal agents uh, do all these. So, of course, I wanted to be at the house where I thought Jaime Figueroa was. Prior to the execution of search warrants and arrests, a last-minute effort to lock down Jaime Figueroa Soto's assets was made hoping to prevent his ability to run and hide. The opulence of drug dealing was on full display. The night before, uh, DEA Arrowing flew me and my partner and my boss. Uh, we had seizure warrants. We, we had identified about a million dollars worth of money, property and stuff, and we wanted to seize that. We don't want that to get gone. So about three million bucks was in a bank in the Republic Bank in uh, San Antonio. So we fly into San Antonio, uh, go to the bank. I, I had a, a seizure warrant. I'm talking to this guy, a higher up guy in the bank. He, of course, Jaime had a different name, Rafael Alde Lopez. He had a Mexican passport in that name. And so I had seizure warrants in both of those names. And, and I told him, you've got a customer by this name. And, uh, he, and of course, he had taken a Xerox of Jaime's passport. So he showed me the passport, and it's got Jaime's picture on it. So I gave him the seizure warrant. We work all night, and my partner and I fly back, and he's going one place, and I'm going another place. So I fly up to Tucson, got it all laid out. Jaime's got this beautiful house up in Scottsdale. One of the cars he had in his backyard was a uh, Rolls-Royce Corniche convertible. They, they went in. Jaime did not speak English, but his, uh, his older son, uh, Jaime Jr., did. And they went in, and they're looking at cars, and uh, the guy... So they look at this one and they say, how much? And the guy told them it's 180000 They said, okay, we'll, we'll take it. And, of course, the guy was a little leery about taking uh, a, a check from a, a couple of guys that are Mexican nationals and letting them ride out of the store in a, a Rolls Royce. So they said, okay, well, we'll take you down to Valley National Bank and I'll put my bank card in and you can see, you know, you can see how much money. So the kid who was 18, they go down and do it. He's got more than a million dollars in his checking account for an 18-year-old. It came time to catch a kingpin, but the hopes of putting handcuffs on Jaime Figueroa Soto were remote. We had guys watching the place, but I didn't know that he was there. So we're taking a risk. And uh, so my boss, the, the head of DEA in Tucson, was the sheriff's department had up, set up a command center with the sheriff. Tom Petropoulos is in Chandler are going to arrest these two guys on murder warrants. We got to do it. We got to, we got to hit it. So we give the word for all 12 places to hit them simultaneously. So we go up, we hit, make an entry, we go in the house, and we've got it kind of laid out where people are going. So I go down one hallway. Well, this bathroom, I wind up at this bathroom, and uh, I can hear the shower running. And I'm hollering for the guy to open the bathroom door, and, eventually get the door crashed in well some old guy turned out that this is a guy that works uh on one of Jaime's ranches down in Mexico not the guy so I come out and and looking around at the people we got we got the wife a couple girls another a young guy I didn't know who he was we got this old man I said oh my gosh we didn't get him so I go out I get on my car radio and I call my boss and I tell tell everybody else to be on the lookout for him because he's not here. I'm very disappointed. 
I walk back into the house. I see another guy sitting on the floor now. And I knew it was Jaime. And I said, well, who's this? And uh, this female police officer said, oh, this is Mr. Rafael Alde Lopez. And I said, hey, Jaime, how's it going? And he kind of looked at me and nodded. And he was in handcuffs. So as it turns out, one of our female agents in searching this bedroom, uh, she's going through this bedroom and didn't see anything, kind of looking. There's a lot of clothes, furs, all kinds of stuff. Boom. She see, She finally sees Jaime. He's hiding between a fur coat and some other stuff with a forty-five cocked and locked, ran light right at his hand. Well, she draws down on him. She gets him out of there and gets him handcuffs, and, and we got him. So nobody got hurt. We got him. Task force officers seized Jaime Figueroa Soto's exotic vehicles, and while delivering them to an impound lot, they realized the financial gap between a common man cop and a drug dealer. Probably more than a million dollars of jewelry in there it was actually in the front page of the paper. Jaime had these grips for a 45. They were solid gold with his name spelled out in diamonds. I'm going to drive that Rolls Royce. So I put that top down on that Rolls Royce. I'd been up a couple days. I wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. I, and uh, two of the IRS guys are each driving brand new Mercedes. There's four or five other cars. We're in a convoy, well, we're driving down Scottsdale Boulevard, and it kind of dawns on me, I haven't eaten in a long time. So I just kind of signal, we pull into McDonald's. So I pull in McDonald's, and I kind of reach in my pocket. I only got like three bucks. The trial of Jaime Figueroa Soto convicted the most significant foreign drug kingpin ever captured on U.S. soil. And we eventually have a 10-week trial. Jaime's convicted. Bernie Velasco gave him 33 and a half years uh, on this sentence. So uh, Tom Petropoulos did a great job, uh, but, but Ken Peasley and Pima County was so lucky to have had Ken Peasley as long as we had and John Davis. They prosecuted these two cases together, and these guys were uh, like pit bulls. Uh, they were absolutely awesome. After he was no longer in power, Jaime Figueroa Soto's friends, associates, and the Mexican government turned on him. And But what we had heard that a lot of Jaime's uh, alleged friends were out there snatching up uh, assets. He had these Charlet cattle from, that he had bought in Mississippi. He had envisioned himself this great cattle baron. And um, uh, he had owned discos, he owned houses. I made a list of everything that we could find in Mexico, and we gave it to the attorney general of Mexico to try to get Mexico to seize everything that they could get of Jaime. Now, whatever, what they ever did, I don't know. I know a house he had in Nogales got torched. Jaime Figueroa Soto had a hand in the abduction and torture of DEA agent Kiki Camarena, then helped his partner and fellow kingpin, Rafael Caro Quintero, escape Mexico after Kiki's murder. We were sitting in trial. Uh, we were in trial for 10 weeks in state court. On, on Jaime. And uh, at this point, Jaime was being represented by uh, the late uh, Bob Hooker, uh, uh, who had been a federal, I mean, a state judge here in town. He told me, he said, uh, if my guy knew something about the Kiki Camarena abduction, he could probably get a walk. And I told him, I said, your guy your guy absolutely knows about that. And he said, well, what are you talking about? I said, while they were torturing Kiki Camarena and his informant, who was this pilot from the Mexican Department of Agriculture, 
they had a, a doctor there, a guy named Dr. Machain, and uh, they would beat Kiki and this pilot trying to get information. They wanted to know who snitched off this. Who are the informants? Who do you know? And they would beat them to unconsciousness, and this guy would then inject them with something to and keep these guys alive. And I said, while they were doing that to Kiki, they called Jaime Figueroa's house. And, they, and he wasn't the only one. They called and asked him, "Do you? we've got a DEA agent here. Have you got any questions for him? And I said, they called your guy, Jaime Figueroa. And he says, can you prove that? And I said, do you want to see the telephone tolls? And he says, yeah. I called my buddy in L.A. that uh, was working on Operation Leenda, which was the operation to try to get anybody that had anything to do with killing and abducting Kiki. I had him the next morning, so when we went to court the next day, I dropped him on his desk, and I said, here you go, ask your boy about this. And uh, he asked him, and he kind of shook his head, yeah. Uh, they call me. And, and of course, we knew it. We had, the, we had the telephone tolls. But later he said that he had gotten a call from Rafael Carl Quintero when the heat was really getting on him that he needed some money. And, and Jaime fronted him $2 million bucks to help him get out of Mexico, and he went to Costa Rica with his 17-year-old girlfriend. Uh, Rafael Carl Quintero leaving and going down to Costa Rica is, is portrayed in the Narcos series and stuff, and that's, that's well known that that all happened. God and faith play a key role in Roger's life and career. I'm a, a Christian. I was still in DEA. I had some times as a pilot where... There were times uh, my partner and I lost an engine over the Brazilian rainforest, and we were in the clouds, and uh, we did not believe we would be able to get back. We just didn't have the altitude to get back, and it didn't. And of course, you'd, at that time, you're working the problem right there. But uh, for me, that was a God thing in getting back. And um, I would really encourage. Anybody, but especially young officers, you have such a tough job today that if you've got God on your side, there's a, 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 a in the Bible it said if if um, if God is with you, who can be against you? And so we all need that in our lives every day. Roger regrets that the war on drugs has not been more successful. Uh, we've done a horrible thing with demand reduction. It's this demand this massive demand that the United States has for drugs, whether it's opioid, uh, marijuana, cocaine. There's something sick and wrong with our society that uh, we, can't make, we can't make it on reality. I don't know if all of these years that I worked at this, if that mattered. And that maybe is not a good thing. You know, you'd like to think that, you know, when you're, getting down to the closer toward the end of your life that I did something that mattered. I'm not sure it did. Roger enjoyed his career and partnerships and the collective effort he was a part of to protect America. I had a, you know, I had a great time uh, in DEA. I worked with a lot of wonderful state and local and federal agents from all over. Uh, I, I, pretty much everybody I knew and work with just did absolutely their best job every day for the American people, tried to do the right thing to try to make America a safer, better place for us to raise our kids in, which is what it's really all about. That was probably the highlight of my career. 
Roger's advice to all is to constantly seek self-improvement. Well, I would say one thing is, is always try to better yourself. Do everything that you can. Bite off as much as you can chew. You can always take a smaller bite, but try to better yourself every day. And you, maybe not that year and maybe not five years, but someplace down the road, that's going to help you out. When you think you've done your best, try to do 2% more, and that will stand you above the crowd. But work on yourself every day. Roger Wallace spent his entire adult life in the service to others, having committed his life to public safety. As a young agent, I looked on him with respect and admiration, not only for his work, but for his willingness to encourage and train new lawmen to be better investigators. Our nation and myself owe him a large debt of gratitude. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.